I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, the podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer. Rachel is a political scientist, election forecaster, and she was a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. She's a really great analyst, and I'm excited to dive into her take on the election and its aftermath. She'll be the first one to tell us we still have a lot of data not in yet, but she'll share with us her hypothesis about both what happened on the first week of November and what that means for elections in the next few cycles. So Steve and I are going to have an opportunity to bat around a lot in our conversation with Rachel, but I'm going to handle the opener solo today. I'm going to jump into some thoughts I've had, and they're some pretty dark thoughts, given where we are today. So, you know, I want to start with just reflecting on what I'm sure a lot of you are reflecting on as we see COVID cases rising, and yet we have most of one of our two political parties denying its severity. Republicans continue to insist that we are overcranking efforts to stop the pandemic. You know, this ridiculous notion that, you know, Democrats want to attack Christmas, like it's insanity. Like, just shut the fuck up. We're heading towards 3,000 deaths a day. We're heading to lockdowns. We see the economic numbers are getting worse and worse over the last few weeks. We will not recover health-wise, socially, from an education standpoint, economically, until this pandemic's in our rearview mirror. And it's going to take at least, you know, it could be another year from now until most people get the vaccine. So if you're frustrated, you should be frustrated. If you're frightened, you should be frightened because you've basically got the entire leadership of the Republican Party being stupid, being dangerous, deceptive. And we've never seen this in American history. And I feel like we're just caught in this awful cycle where these elected officials feel like they have to play to the craziest 15 to 20 percent of the country who will believe any conspiracy theory. And the con men and the con women and all these things deserve the greatest scorn. But the people who are getting conned deserve it as well. Like, just get your shit together and deal with what's true. You know, Joe Biden won this election for a lot of reasons. But if you had to really point at one, it was just his overperformance compared to 16 in suburban areas. Trump was right to be worried about it. You know, he ran around the country for 60 days talking about suburban women love me. And they ultimately cost him the presidency. And to put my like data nerd hat on, you know, Trump talked about, you know, we got 74 million votes and should have been enough. And how wasn't it? And basically suggesting that I should have had more and those were stolen and there's no way Biden got 80 million votes. And I think that was a window in my view is Trump's campaign was telling him if they got those number of votes, it'd be enough to win. And that's like political malpractice because pretty much everybody I trust around elections, whether they be Republican, Democrat, election data experts, academics, thought turnout would be north of 150 million. So if Trump's campaign was really basing their strategy and tactics on a turnout of 140, 145 million, it was a feat of historically epic political malpractice. And I'd love to know, actually, if that's the truth, if Trump was told, here's what it'll take to win. And they were just off on their numbers. And that's where some of the fury comes, because everybody, you know, with an ounce of sense, looking at what happened in 18, looking at the early vote, looking at intensity that was coming out in polling, thought that this would go north of 150, certainly north of 148 million. But where we are with the pandemic, where we are with the threats of our democracy are all self-inflicted wounds done by cynical, selfish people. And, you know, America's had really tough moments through its history. We've had enemies, certainly during World War II. We had enemies from within around civil rights and the treatment of of minorities and women. But this is unprecedented. 
where you have the aggravation of the effects of a pandemic. You have a full out assault on our democracy and our form of government and our constitution from within. Our enemies, our adversaries, the people who we uh, tussle with most on the world stage, the North Koreas and the Irans and the Russians and the Chinese, they couldn't dream up a scenario where this much damage was done to the United States from within. And that's where we are. So anyway, enough of me prattling on. We have a great guest waiting for us, Rachel Bittekoffer. Rachel is one of the most accurate forecasters of the 2018 blue wave. Her theory of negative partisanship could upend how elections are run. I'll, I'll make a point here. There was a headline, I believe is in Politico, suggesting that Rachel did not believe in swing voters. It actually got my attention because I happen to believe in them. Uh, but learning more from her writing and her research, what she's saying is turnout matters probably the most if you were to order it. But there's still six to seven percent of the electorate that does swing. And, and obviously in, in close elections, that makes a difference. Um, so her big idea is that the true swing voter is the low propensity voter. In her model, elections are mostly won through turnout, not persuasion, although persuasion still plays its role. And we'll talk about that with her. And what motivates turnout is negative partisanship. In other words, turnout depends on motivating the independents who lean your way, along with low propensity voters to the polls and registering new ones in that election cycle. And what encourages people to vote on election day? According to Rachel's research, the number one factor is fear of the opposite party, which was clearly part of Trump's playbook in 2020. Rachel, welcome to Battleground. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my honor to be here. I could not think of two people I would prefer to talk to more about this election outcome and what we're looking down, coming down the stretch here. Uh, it's really nice. I don't know that that's true. Oh, it's true. It's definitely thank true. Thank you. Well, it's... um. It's December. Who knows what America will look like by the end of the month? November was a momentous month. Yeah. We saw the first attempted coup in American history with President Trump and all the shenanigans and insanity of it. But let's get into what happened in this election. What we're really talking about are two different election outcomes, right? We have a presidential outcome. We see Biden picking up Midwestern states because this time, instead of being complacent, and fat and happy and thinking, you know, we've got this in the bag. The Democratic electorate was convinced that Trump was the Terminator, that he couldn't be killed. And no matter what the data said in terms of his polling, that if they didn't vote and bring 10 of their friends with them, Trump was going to be reelected. And, and that was the tone and temperament for the cycle. And then on top of that, you've got your realignment of Arizona, where since 2010, and show me your papers and the political activation of that millennial Latino generation there coinciding with negative partisanship, with that motivation of Democratic electorate. But when we look at the congressional night, I mean, we're watching a story of like, why is the Congress map underperforming? Everybody, my forecast and everybody else's expected dominant performance in these House elections. Right. Everybody was expecting worst case, hold what you got in 18, gain five or 10 seats. That didn't yeah. happen. Now they barely have a majority. I think there was a view as, wow, Biden really outperformed Democratic House and Senate candidates. And I know we're early in the data analysis, but you know, Biden only carried, correct me if I'm wrong, like 225 House districts. So I think what this shows is it wasn't like Biden was getting 54% in a competitive House district and the Democrat was getting 48. It's just with high Republican turnout, yeah. it just pointed out how tough this is going to be. Right. 
you know, in 18, we obviously had a turnout differential. I mean, Trump got pretty good turnout in in some of those red Senate seats. So just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a misperception out there that Biden did awesome in all these Senate races and yeah. these House races. And that's not what happened. No, that's not what happened. And, and you know what? Like, I have been waiting for the voter file data and, you know, the counting. I mean, I God, here we are. Like, what is it? Oh, OK. It's a month later. And we're still counting ballots in a couple of these races. I think it's possible that the Republicans are going to get all four of these outstanding races. But anyway, I'd like to get into the voter file because I'm looking for what is the percent of the Republican turnout relative to the percent of Democratic turnout? Because like, to me, that's the hypothesis that I'm going to be looking at to test. Okay, you can't win a race if you're a Democrat. If the Republicans outperform you on ballot return or, you know, turnout by 10 points, I mean, you can win over the independent argument, but if they've got 10 points more turnout relative to size, of course, in a swing district, then, you know, that's that's just tough. So what you think we're going to find is exits could be off, but stands to reason that Biden did well with moderate voters, some of those Democrat, Republican, but most of them independents. But that in those House districts, you're going to see probably those House district candidates did fine with those voters as well. There was just a lopsided turnout story that in battleground states, Biden was able to overcome just because he has urban areas he can draw on. Yes. That most of these House candidates don't. Exactly. The problem is like the Democrats get focused on data, right? So like the data is really inconclusive about the Mm -hmm. power of a field door person Like they have these data labs and like, oh, you know, you might get the same effect from doing text banking and then you could reach 20,000 people. But sometimes they forget about the 30,000 foot view. So like yard signs, right? Like there's this passion of getting rid of all the the use of signs. And it's like, okay, yeah, but think about like at the macro level, like what signs do, right? There's a reason businesses have signs, right? (laughs) Like if you don't have a sign, no one knows who the fuck you are, right? Like you have to have a sign, right? I don't know if I can cuss on this show, right? You can cuss all you want. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like signs generate earned media coverage, right? When Trump had a whole shit ton of signs popping up everywhere, what did the media do? They talked about his signs, it gave him momentum. Signs generate like, you know, we've never really tested this. We don't really know. And it's hard to test, but anecdotally, we have a sense that signs tell other people, especially in a realigning area, hey, it's okay. It's okay to come join like the Biden train in suburban Texas, right? Like there's intangible things that you might not be able to capture in a linear model, right? And Democrats have almost ridden the data train into absurdity. So I've had the experience now working really for the first time with the Democratic candidates. And one of our experiences at the Lincoln Project, you know, we've all talked about it and said, well, there really is, I mean, a different sensibility, I think, around some of this stuff, just culturally between people in the Republican and Democratic right. parties, right? Right. I've always had the view, even in the Republican Party, that for sure politics is science now, right? And the data matters, but politics isn't data. In numbers, there's an art to it. There's intangible aspects to it that transcend all of these things. And I wonder what your view is, because I think you at a presidential level, you did this better than anyone has ever done it. I think you understand this stuff better than any person understands it, right? Who's a practitioner, you know, of politics at the level we've done it at. Do you agree with that, that there's a line where it becomes self-defeating, where 
the intangibles and all of this are stripped out to the detriment of it. And I'll, yeah. I'll give you a specific example. So I, I think um, the defund the police stuff, for example, people scratching around, you know, talking about like an underperformance of black turnout in various places. It's like, has it occurred to anybody that like hardworking, law abiding black people aren't in favor of defunding the police? You know, woke culture is it's manifested into our politics, into our discussion, I just think is a repellent, right? You don't need a lot of data to kind of figure that out. I wonder what your reaction to that yeah, is. Yeah, well, okay, I'm going to go on a little rant here. So first of all, <laughs> to win the Electoral College as a Democrat is really fucking hard, mm -hmm. okay? Because I've said this over and over again, when you go to battleground states, there are more conservatives than liberals in them. They start closer to the 50-yard line. And Republicans get more consistent, reliable turnout. So it's really hard to piece this together. So, Steve, I'd say a lot of this is driven by some of the outside donors who want to know with certainty what's the best way to spend a dollar, right? Is it field? Is it social media? Is it TV advertising? And that's driving so much of this. And for me, you know, I love data. I've swum in data my entire career, but there is a common sense part of politics. So first of all, on the field question. Now, listen, if it wasn't safe, it wasn't safe. But it got to the point where I think there were enough people willing to do it and people willing to, you know, have their door knocked or signs. Like my view of politics is you have to do it all because you may not reach a voter through text banking or through a social media. I mean, listen, back in the Obama campaigns, we used to flood bars areas. That's not very strategic, but we thought it was the only way to reach some young people to get them registered, to get them to volunteer. I'll give you a 16 example. An obvious question when you look back at 16 is, the Clinton campaign did not, with ferocity and consistency, make the fact that Trump is an imposter on the economy the core message. Like, this guy says he's going to fight for working people. Who the fuck is he? He makes his ties in China. And listen, they had research that suggested that was not as fruitful. Like, a lot of research. There are really smart people, Joel Benenson and others, Steve, who we've talked to who are part of that. But you always have to remember, executive races are about the economy. And even if your data suggests otherwise, you've got to have a track of messaging on that. And so, yeah, I do think if we're in this holy pursuit of what's the best way to spend a dollar, we do a disservice if we don't understand it takes it all, number one. And number two, there's just some truisms in politics that we have to understand. You have to win the economic argument. If you're a Democrat, you have to win the middle of the electorate. Rachel, by the way, I think probably all three of us have been victim of shitty political headlines. <laughs> you know, has been termed someone who doesn't believe in swing voters. Her point is there's less of them than people think, but six to seven percent is still enough to win elections if you're not losing turnout. Right. Like, and if you're a Democrat, you have to do right. that. So, yeah, Steve, I think there's going to be a tension there between the art and the science and the things we know that are important in politics and are not. Defund the police is a great example of that. Now, Joe Biden was saying, I'm not for defending the police. I think in retrospect, he probably should have run ads saying that as opposed to just answering questions. Listen, Barack Obama, I think, has been as eloquent on this question as anybody has been. If you think about it, packing the Supreme Court and defunding the police are two of the worst political messages yes. and uses of language I've seen in modern political history. And I think they both hurt. And listen, Bobby Kennedy is my political idol. He was a great senator, a great attorney general. I think he would have been elected president. But, you know, he was also John F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign manager. His idealism about wanting to dream about things that never were and fight for that. There's rarely been a figure in politics who had that kind of vision. But he also knew none of it fucking mattered if you didn't win. You know, so he was brutally 
focused on that, you had to win. So I have talked to a lot of donors, people who donors hire, say, listen, I want to give money to the place. There's got to be an answer to this. How can I have the best impact per dollar spent per vote? And I am all for data and analysis of that situation. But there is common sense. You have to do it all. You've got to be at doors. You've got to be at bars. You've got to be at supermarkets. You've got to be on every platform. You've got a TV. You have to do radio because there's voters there too. A place where I think in the Obama campaigns, we overspent on radio compared to what had been done before because you just have to understand how people live their lives. There's a lot of people who are still spending hours a day on the radio because they're commuting or they're on their tractor and it's really important. So listen, data makes all of us smarter. It makes us spend resources better. It makes us make better decisions, hopefully have a sense of what attacks hurt us and what don't, what attacks are helping us. So let's double down on them. So data has got to be part of it. But there just has to be a common sense is this. And, and listen, I know a lot of people listening to this will say, well, of course, that's how we run our campaigns. And we know now no Democrat will ever suffer from a lack of resources, OK, if they've got half a compelling story. We just read that Sarah Gideon Maine still has $14 million in the bank, OK? So no one's going to lose because of money. So you should be able to do it all. And that means not just door knocking in urban areas for registration and turnout. It actually means being in rural areas and exurban areas to try and cut down some of these margins. So we lose them 62-38 instead of 70-30. to So I believe that. And I think Rachel's right, which is I get asked all the time by people saying, well, you know, door knocking just doesn't matter. There's a piece of data that says that. I'm like, you're out of your fucking mind, okay? By the way, no one's won a state legislative race without door knocking, number one, okay? And what is a presidential campaign or a big governor's race? Basically, you should treat it like a state legislative campaign. I really believe you should do that. That's the kind of voter yes. contact you want to have. Of yes. course, there's similar challenges on the Republican side. There's no question about that. But I think the one thing that's pretty clear is Trump's field game was strong. I remember back in late 19, they were doing these Trump organization events and these freak shows like Katrina fucking Pearson and Laura Trump would show up in like Grand Rapids or Reno. And there were hundreds of people of there. OK, hundreds of people committing to do work. I actually think they might have been more hurt by the pandemic than the Democrats were, because I think they built a machine and they had people who I think did door knock through the pandemic, but I'm sure a lot of them weren't willing to do that. And when you see that kind of turnout for like tier B freak show celebrities yep. who are not there to like get a free cocktail or to just hear a speech, they're there to like get their instructions to work. It was pretty frightening to me. And that's what we have to understand is now one question I have for Rachel is, do you think this Republican turnout that we saw this time, does that continue in a non-Trump era? It does. And let me tell you exactly why. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, you, you said something. Republicans enjoy consistently better turnout, right? And so, like, Democrats have looked at that and been like, oh, well, it's genetic, okay? Like, Republicans pop out of the womb and they care about the Supreme Court and they come out to vote better, okay? And I look at that and I'm like, no, bullshit. It's because Republicans are better at electioneering. Republicans understand intuitively, if they don't understand it explicitly, that public opinion flows from the top down, that you make voters care about the shit you want to care about. I mean, it's amazing to me that the Democratic Party watched the average rank and file American become an expert in Benghazi. That to put that issue like on the list of things that bothered them, at least if they had an R next to their name, you know, and still can't figure out how much 
agenda framing, agenda setting, narrative framing can impact the electorate. They don't have to just float in this ocean and wait for a wind to come by. They could use the control of the House agenda. Nancy Pelosi could have introduced the HEROES Act and then used control of the House to hammer the hell out of the Republican Party for not bringing economic aid to the American public. So like we talk about how these presidential cycles are all about economics. You've got the American public literally starving to death, and you don't make this election cycle a referendum on the incumbent and the economy all the way from top to bottom. So when you look at this map, you have a presidential cycle that occurs exactly as how it's supposed to. I argue it's because the Lincoln Project comes along and says, this is how you frame a campaign against Trump and basically models it, right? You do a nationalized campaign as a referendum campaign. You make it about stakes and you make it about COVID and basic competence and American patriotism. Here you go, Biden campaign. This is how you do it. No such luck for the congressional map. They come up with this plan prior to the pandemic that they're going to run on health care, right? I mean, you can't dislodge them off of it. It's going to be a wonky policy issue. It's going to be policy-based, and it's going to go to the head. It's analytic. It's not heart. It's not emotion. It's not they're going to take your health care and you're going to die. You're going to die. They're going to have death panels, right? It's, you know, wonky policy shit. I'll say, I'll say this. You know, so some of our best friends, David's and, and mine are pollsters, and it's an important part of the campaign and, and everything else. I have a really good friend of mine who's a pollster, and we were doing a race, and he said, this is the most important issue, right? And, it's, and this is the second most and the third. I said, it's the most important issue on the basis of the 10 yes. questions you asked, right? If you say, what do you like better? apples, bananas, peaches, right? And you leave out avocados. You have no idea if a majority of the people like avocados. And going back to our earlier conversation, I will say this at the Lincoln Pride, we had a point of view. We had a point of conviction. And basically was, I don't give a fuck what the numbers say. This election is about Donald Trump. The second issue in this election is Donald Trump. Trump, Trump, yep. Trump, and Trump, and the next 550 issues after that, right? And message drives numbers. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how Democrats can stay competitive in future election cycles. Welcome back to Battleground. We're here with Rachel Bittekoffer. Let's look at this simple question. Who's going to have an easier task gaining some of what eroded this time. So if you look at, let's say, over the next eight years, it seems like the Republican Party will want to continue to make, even if they're modest, gains with non-college right. Hispanic voters, non-college African-American voters, win back some of the suburban losses, keep up their margins in exurban and rural areas, and obviously try and keep high turnout. Democrats want to basically keep you know, support of African-Americans north of 90, 93%, keep support of Hispanics and Latinos generally closer to 70 than not, keep these suburban gains. They really were able to develop in 18 and 20, get consistent turnout. And of course, you're going to have any chance of maintaining the House consistently or winning back the Senate. You've got to get more competitive in exurban and rural areas. So tell me like your view of which party do you think has the easiest route to where they need to get to? I'd bet long, meaning over decades on the Democratic Party, but I think there's some landmines here 
in the near future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, so like the way you guys think about things is totally different than how I think about things, right? So like, you know, the way that you guys think about 2022 is still middle-centric. It's still about like preferences of suburban voters winning back to the GOP. I don't see it like that at all. I think 2022 is going to be about turnout collapse. I think Democrats need to keep the 10 points of surge turnout that they got from right. the Trump era. And if they don't keep that 10, if if they only keep five of it, they might be able to survive. No, I very much agree with know? that. Right, right. That the turnout game is central on both parties. Right? Yeah. And can the Republicans maintain their turnout, which they yeah. tend to do? Here's the thing, David. Like, I'm about to embark on something that that, you know, like, I mean, I don't want to hurt the feelings of people in the party. But the fact is, these were good fundamentals, okay? These yes. were great fucking fundamentals. And it can't be that Silver's model and my model and Wasserman's model and all these other models were wrong. Kyle Condick's never fucking wrong with the crystal ball. He's always right. right? I mean, he makes these house handicapped races and he's wrong, right? So if something is wrong. I mean, we were supposed to be flipping four state legislative chambers and instead we don't flip one single chamber. So what I'm doing is I'm actually launching a super PAC, okay? And I, you know, because here's the thing. McConnell, he holds a lot of cards in his hand and Biden has a very optimistic uh, view as to what he might be able to do through the powers of persuasion. He thinks that he can get McConnell to sit down and have an adult, you know, hey, listen, look at us. We're on the precipice of collapse here. You and I, we have this power together. You and I can reset and we can, you know, push the country back from the precipice and God love him, but I don't think it will happen. So I, what I'm doing is I am forming a super PAC with a great partner, another woman, Lori Spivak is just a fantastic woman. And we are going to do the things that for years and years you've heard Democrats say, why doesn't the DNC do this? Why doesn't the DCCC do that? We're just going to do it, man. What we're going to do is we're going to Lincoln Project for the left, by the left, and it's going to be exactly what you just talked about, David. We're not going to give a fuck. We're not testing anything. We're not going to be doing focus groups. We're not going to be doing message testing. It's not going to be poll tested. It's going to be gut and common sense, right? By the way, we send our moderate candidates out, and we tell them, go out there and tell voters that you're a fiscal conservative. Okay. That's how you should do moderation. So right now, you know, the standard attack on our frontliners coming up in 2022 is going to be this. Don't vote for Abigail Spanberger. Okay. She is a, a raging liberal. She's like AOC. She's a member of the squad. She's a socialist. And Spanberger's natural instinct, what she's been trained to do is say, no, 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 I'm not one of those Democrats. You know, I'm, I'm fiscally conservative. Da, 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 da. And like right then, you've already lost. I mean, you've lost, right? The race is done. You've lost. And when you ask me, how is 22 going to play out? I already know. If nothing changes from what has happened, if we let the same people go run the same playbook, the entire front line is going to get wiped out. And we're going to see the GOP dominate Congress all the way through Biden's term. So Spanberger's response can't be that. It has to be confident. You know, you're damn right I'm a Democrat. Let me tell you why I'm a liberal. You know, let's look at the Republican record on economics. It's decimated the American middle class. The idea that Spanberger's defending herself against her opponent, Nick Freitas, is a radical, dude. I mean, the guy is one of the most extreme members of the Virginia State House, and yet he's the one getting Virginia reporters to call me 
to talk about how Spanberger has abandoned her platform of moderation. And I laugh at the reporter and I say, wait a minute, what? And she's like, yeah, I'm trying to get some information about Abigail Spanberger and her opponent, Nick Freitas, is accusing her of abandoning her promise to be a moderate. And I'm like, have you ever looked at Nick Freitas's voting record, lady? He voted yes to keep guns in the hands of domestic abusers. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> it's like the, the branding problem of this party is so, it has been so, I mean, Steve, you know, no offense, but the, the eight principles of the Lincoln Project are good at what they do. And they were doing it for a long time on the other side of the aisle. So they, they'll tell you, you know, the re- Democrats are an easy target, you know, and it's time, time to. I'll give you, yeah. I'll give you my theory on this, that my favorite member of Congress, Katie Porter. Yeah. This is a Republican area, right? And this yeah. is how I evaluate. So I was down there, right? And I'm I'm giving her an evaluation, right? I'm gonna vote for her. I'm gonna say, do I like her voting record on this? Nah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But but do I love her oversight? Yes. Like I love it. Yes. Right. I love it. Right. Here's a problem we have in the country. And this is where Democrats should go. Doesn't matter. Could be big tech, big banks, big, big, big. Everywhere you see big. Right. The American people are getting <laughs> fucked. Right. Yes, right. A hundred percent. If the focus is on accountability. Yeah. Right. You go on accountability. Find the bad people. Put a light on them. That's right. And fight for the little guy. That's right. Right. That is how you eviscerate the ideological perspective. Like Katie Porter in Orange County, California has demonstrated clearly. Why do people tolerate in that area? And that, and that area has changed and I'm familiar with it. It's yes. drifted left. But, but her voting record is out of step with that district. However, she has conviction. That's right. She has integrity. Mm-hmm. And people look at her and say, well, at least there's one person up there who's fucking doing their job. Yep. Right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> We're going to pay some bills, so stick around to hear about how to campaign in an ongoing age of propaganda. Welcome back to Battleground with political scientist Rachel Bittacoffer. We're leaving out a big piece of this. If you obliterate the ability to tell the difference between the truth and the lie, it's just gone. Joe Biden's a radical socialist, millions of people buying into QAnon, nonstop misinformation pouring out of Fox News. And I think that this is, you know, more on my side, almost all of us, right, who are, you know, former vestigal Republicans, independents. We know people who voted for Trump, right? Because of, well, you know, socialism, whatever. I don't like Trump, but I, I got it. And you kind of sit there and you roll your eyes. But then there's other people, you know, you just look at them, right? Because in every other facet of life, they're like decent, normal people yes. who have values. Have if you, if you projected the values that Trump represents into any other aspect of their life, if their friends acted like that, their kids, their boss, they would have the same reaction that I, I don't know what it is. And I, I believe I'll spend the rest of my life contemplating that. Mm-hmm. But propaganda works. It's about an information flow 
of complete alternate reality because I'm listening to you talk. Say, what what do you mean? This is the greatest economy of all time. Right. Trump saved millions of lives from the Wuhan (laughs) flu made in the laboratory by the communists. He shut down the country, took decisive action. We have the best response of any country in the world. Jared's on it. It's not a point of disagreement on a difference of opinion. It's objective reality. Yeah. Is a blur. Yeah, well, J- hey, just Steve, did you see the example of that? Jim Jordan, he said, 50 million Americans don't believe the election outcome. We have to investigate this. Why do 50 million people yeah. not? I mean, it's unbelievable. The Republican Party has discovered some things from this cycle. They have discovered that they can go to low information voters, tell them whatever they want to tell them. Right. And so they're going to really ramp up their war machine, really ramp it up. And because voters aren't us, because voters aren't smart, well-engaged people who know who Mitch McConnell is, you've got to meet them where they are. And that's what the Republican Party did when they swooped in, you know, 2018, late 2019, and started talking to Cubans who have this history with socialism and started to tell them, hey, the Democrats are a party of socialists. They're going to take the country and turn it into a socialist hellhole. It doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to make logical sense. It just has to get advertised, right? Meanwhile, when we say, look, voters want it to be about issues. They don't want it to be about Trump. Well, if you ask a voter, do you want it to be about your base emotions, your yuck reaction to Donald Trump, or do you want it to be about your higher ideals? The fuck do you think the voter's going to say? They're going to say it's my it's about issues and higher ideals. And so I don't want to make people feel bad, but I don't have fucking time to worry if they do feel bad because we are in a situation right now where this democracy is literally sitting on a cliff and beating back the Trump presidency has only saved us from the emergent yes. five alarm fire. Yeah, it's okay. given us the opportunity yes, to survive. Yes, it's given us not, the opportunity that's to all survive, it has, yeah. right? No, and, I yeah, think yeah. your point about yeah. polling, I mean, so so there's obviously, you know, polling and modeling. By the way, I think this isn't, you see all these polls about people, you know, their willingness to take a vaccine. My guess is the numbers are probably 10 to 15% worse because yes. people aren't going to tell someone they're not going to do it. So I think we have a bigger challenge here. Yeah. But like, I think the question is, yes, we'd all like better public polling and modeling to tell us what's going to happen in the race. But th- what I think we've seen is, the reality is not polls, and the reality is different than the polls, both in terms of some of the electoral outcomes, but some of these attitudes. So you're right. I mean, I think on the socialism thing, if you have a poll that says, well, it's not really working in Miami-Dade, history suggests that that is an attack you have to worry about, yes. right? And you've got to be all over it. No doubt. And that's my point about politics. It's not just tactics, it's also messaging. You have to be able to do everything you want to do to every part of the electorate and do it over and over again yeah, in yeah, different yeah. mediums to win. And you can't well, be Rachel, on defense. Yeah. I just want to say one more thing. Like you yeah. can't be on defense. You have to put them on defense. And there's never been a party more deserving and easy to put on defense than this version of the Republican Party. And I, I'm really looking forward to showing people how that's going to get done. Yeah, I I agree very much. Well, look forward to hearing more about what you're up to. And and thanks for all your insights in this election. And thanks again for joining us on Battleground. It's been such a such a treat. Big fan of you, David, for years and years. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. That was great. Steve, you too. Uh, It has been so great to talk to you. And, you know, again, like a huge, huge fan 
every time I see you on MSNBC, I just want to bottle you and like take you outside and like open you up and let you tell the world this is what we should be saying. Like, listen to Steve Schmidt. <laughs> so thanks. It was a real pleasure to join you today. Thanks so much to Rachel Bittekoffer for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Battleground is her podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jess Williams did research for this episode. Allie Rogers is our associate producer, and Christian Castro-Wassell is our executive producer.